The Black Monk by Anton Chekhov, translated by Robert Edward Crozier Long. Part 2, Chapters 6 through 9. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6. When he learned from Kovrin that not only had a romance resulted, but that a wedding was to follow, Yegor Semyonovitch walked from corner to corner and tried to conceal his agitation. His hands shook, his neck seemed swollen and purple. He ordered the horses to be put into his racing droshky and drove away. Tanya, seeing how he whipped the horses and how he pushed his cap down over his ears, understood his mood, locked herself into her room, and cried all day. In the orangery, the peaches and plums were already ripe. The packing and dispatch to Moscow of such a delicate load required much attention, trouble, and bustle. Owing to the heat of the summer, every tree had to be watered. The process was costly in time and working power, and many caterpillars appeared, which the workmen, and even Yegor Semyonovich and Tanya, crushed with their fingers to the great disgust of Kovrin. The autumn orders for fruit and trees had to be attended to, and a vast correspondence carried on. And at the very busiest time, when it seemed no one had a free moment, work began in the fields and deprived the garden of half its workers. Yegor Semyonovitch, very sunburnt, very irritated, and very worried, galloped about, now to the garden, now to the fields, and all the time shouted that they were tearing him to bits, and that he would put a bullet through his brain. On top of all came the bustle over Tanya's trousseau, to which the Pototskys attributed infinite significance. With the eternal snipping of scissors, rattle of sewing machines, smell of flat irons, and the caprices of the nervous and touchy dressmaker, the whole house seemed to spin round. And to make matters worse, visitors arrived every day, and these visitors had to be amused, fed, and lodged for the night. Yet work and worry passed unnoticed in a mist of joy. Tanya felt as if love and happiness had suddenly burst upon her, although ever since her fourteenth year she had been certain that Kovrin would marry nobody but herself. She was eternally in a state of astonishment, doubt, and disbelief in herself. At one moment she was seized by such great joy that she felt she must fly away to the clouds and pray to God. But a moment later she remembered that when August came she would have to leave the home of her childhood and forsake her father, and she was frightened by the thought, God knows whence it came, that she was trivial, insignificant, and unworthy of a great man like Kovrin. When such thoughts came she would run up to her room, lock herself in, and cry bitterly for hours. But when visitors were present, it broke in upon her that Kovrin was a singularly handsome man, that all the women loved him and envied her, and in these moments her heart was as full of rapture and pride as if she had conquered the whole world. When he dared to smile on any other woman, she trembled with jealousy, went to her room, and again, tears. These new feelings possessed her altogether. She helped her father mechanically, noticing neither pears nor caterpillars, nor workmen, nor how swiftly time was passing by. Yegor Semyonovitch was in much the same state of mind. He still worked from morning to night, flew about the gardens, and lost his temper, but all the while he was wrapped in a magic reverie. In his sturdy body contended two men, one the real Yegor Semyonovitch, 
who, when he listened to the gardener Ivan Karlovich's report of some mistake or disorder, went mad with excitement and tore his hair, and the other, the unreal Yegor Semyonovich, a half-intoxicated old man who broke off an important conversation in the middle of a word, seized the gardener by the shoulder and stammered, You may say what you like, but blood is thicker than water. His mother was an astonishing, a most noble, a most brilliant woman. It was a pleasure to see her good, pure, open angel face. She painted beautifully, wrote poetry, spoke five foreign languages, and sang, Poor thing, heaven rest her soul, she died of consumption. The unreal Yegor Semyonovich sighed, and after a moment's silence continued, When he was a boy, growing up to manhood in my house, he had just such an angel face, open and good. His looks, his movements, his words were as gentle and graceful as his mother's, and his intellect. It is not for nothing he has the degree of magister, but you just wait, Ivan Karlovich. You'll see what he'll be in ten years' time. Why, he'll be out of sight. But here the real Yegor Semyonovich remembered himself, seized his head and roared, Devils, frost-bitten, ruined, destroyed, the garden is ruined, the garden is destroyed. Kovrin worked with all his former ardor, and hardly noticed the bustle about him. Love only poured oil on the flames. After every meeting with Tanya, he returned to his rooms in rapture and happiness, and set to work with his books and manuscript with the same passion with which he had kissed her and sworn his love. What the black monk had told him of his election by God, of eternal truth, and of the glorious future of humanity, gave to all his work a peculiar, unusual significance. Once or twice every week, either in the park or in the house, he met the monk and talked with him for hours. But this did not frighten, but on the contrary, delighted him. For he was now assured that such apparitions visit only the elect and exceptional who dedicate themselves to the ministry of ideas. Assumption passed unobserved. Then came the wedding, celebrated by the determined wish of Yegor Semyonovich with what was called éclat, that is, with meaningless festivities, which lasted for two days. Three thousand roubles were consumed in food and drink, but what with the vile music, the noisy toasts, the fussing servants, the clamor, and the closeness of the atmosphere, no one appreciated the expensive wines or the astonishing hors d'oeuvres specially ordered from Moscow. Chapter 7 One of the long winter nights, Kovrin lay in bed, reading a French novel. Poor Tanya, whose head every evening ached as the result of the unaccustomed life in town, had long been sleeping, muttering incoherent phrases in her dreams. The clock struck three. Kovrin put out the candle and lay down, lay for a long time with closed eyes, unable to sleep, owing to the heat of the room, and Tanya's continued muttering. At half-past four he again lighted the candle. The black monk was sitting in a chair beside his bed, "'Good night,' said the monk, and then, after a moment's silence, asked, "'What are you thinking of now?' "'Of glory,' answered Kovrin. "'In a French novel which I have just been reading, "'the hero is a young man who does foolish things "'and dies from a passion for glory. "'To me this passion is inconceivable. "'Because you are too clever, "'you look indifferently on fame as a toy which cannot interest you. "'That is true.' 
Celebrity has no attractions for you. What flattery, joy, or instruction can a man draw from the knowledge that his name will be graven on a monument, when time will efface the inscription sooner or later? Yes, happily there are too many of you for brief human memory to remember all your names. Of course, said Coverin, and why remember them? But let us talk of something else, of happiness, for instance. What is this happiness? When the clock struck five, he was sitting on the bed, with his feet trailing on the carpet, and his head turned to the monk, and saying, In ancient times a man became frightened at his happiness, so great it was, and to placate the gods laid before them in sacrifice his beloved ring. You have heard. Now I, like Polycrates, am a little frightened at my own happiness. From morning to night, I experience only joy. Joy absorbs me and stifles all other feelings. I do not know the meaning of grief, affliction, or weariness. I speak seriously. I am beginning to doubt. Why? asked the monk in an astonished tone. Then you think joy is a supernatural feeling? You think it is not the normal condition of things? No. The higher man has climbed in mental and moral development, the freer he is the greater satisfaction he draws from life. Socrates, Diogenes, Marcus Aurelius knew joy and not sorrow, and the apostles said, Rejoice exceedingly, rejoice and be happy. And suddenly the gods will be angered, said Coverin jokingly, but it would hardly be to my taste if they were to steal my happiness and force me to shiver and starve. Tanya awoke and looked at her husband with amazement and terror. He spoke, he turned to the chair, he gesticulated and laughed. His eyes glittered and his laughter sounded strange. Androsha, whom are you speaking to? she asked, seizing the hand which he had stretched out to the monk. Androsha, who is it? Who? answered Kovrin. Why, the monk. He is sitting there. He pointed to the black monk. There is no one there. No one, Androsha. You are ill. Tanya embraced her husband and, pressing against him as if to defend him against the apparition, covered his eyes with her hand. You are ill, she sobbed, trembling all over. Forgive me, darling, but for a long time I have fancied you were unnerved in some way. You are ill. Psychically, Andrusha. The shudder communicated itself to him. He looked once more at the chair, now empty, and suddenly felt weakness in his arms and legs. He began to dress. It is nothing, Tanya, nothing, he stammered and still shuddered. But I am a little unwell. It is time to recognize it. I have noticed it for a long time, and father noticed it, she said, trying to restrain her sobs. You have been speaking so funnily to yourself and smiling so strangely, and you do not sleep. Oh, my God, my God, save us, she cried in terror. But do not be afraid, Androsha, do not fear. For God's sake, do not be afraid. She also dressed. It was only as he looked at her that Corvin understood the danger of his position and realized the meaning of the black monk and of their conversations. It became plain to him that he was mad. Both, themselves not knowing why, dressed and went into the hall. She first, he after her. There they found Yegor Semyonovich in his dressing gown. He was staying with them and had been awakened by Tanya's sobs. Do not be afraid, Andrusha, said Tanya, trembling as if in fever. Do not be afraid. Father, this will pass off. It will pass off. Kovrin was so agitated that he could hardly speak. 
but he tried to treat the matter in a joke. He turned to his father-in-law and attempted to say, Congratulate me. It seems I have gone out of my mind. But his lips only moved, and he smiled bitterly. At nine o'clock, they put on his overcoat and a fur cloak, wrapped him up in a shawl, and drove him to the doctor's. He began a course of treatment. Chapter 8 Again Summer By the doctor's orders, Colvin returned to the country. He had recovered his health and no longer saw the black monk. It only remained for him to recruit his physical strength. He lived with his father-in-law, drank much milk, worked only two hours a day, never touched wine, and gave up smoking. On the evening of the 19th June, before Elijah's day, a vesper service was held in the house. When the priest took the censer from the sexton and the vast hall began to smell like a church, Colvin felt tired. He went into the garden. Taking no notice of the gorgeous blossoms around him, he walked up and down, sat for a while on a bench, and then walked through the park. He descended the sloping bank to the margin of the river and stood still, looking questioningly at the water. The great pines with their shaggy roots, which a year before had seen him so young, so joyous, so active, no longer whispered, but stood silent and motionless, as if not recognizing him. And indeed, with his short-dipped hair, his feeble walk, and his changed face, so heavy and pale and changed since last year, he would hardly have been recognized anywhere. He crossed the stream. In the field, last year covered with rye, lay rows of reaped oats. The sun had set, and on the horizon flamed a broad red afterglow, foretelling stormy weather. All was quiet, and gazing towards the point at which a year before he had first seen the black monk, Colvin stood twenty minutes, watching the crimson fade. When he returned to the house, tired and unsatisfied, Yegor Semyonovich and Tanya were sitting on the steps of the terrace, drinking tea. They were talking together, and seeing Colvin, stopped, but Colvin knew by their faces that they had been speaking of him. It is time for you to have your milk, said Tanya to her husband. No, not yet, he answered, sitting down on the lowest step. You drink it, I do not want it. Tanya timidly exchanged glances with her father and said in a guilty voice, You know very well that the milk does you good. Yes, any amount of good, laughed Colvin. I congratulate you, I have gained a pound in weight since last Friday. He pressed his hands to his head and said in a pained voice, Why? Why have you cured me? Bromide mixtures, idleness, warm baths, watching in trivial terror over every mouthful, every step. All this, in the end, will drive me to idiocy. I had gone out of my mind. I had the mania of greatness. But for all that, I was bright, active, and even happy. I was interesting and original. Now I have become rational and solid, just like the rest of the world. I am a mediocrity and it is tiresome for me to live. Oh, how cruelly, how cruelly you have treated me. I had hallucinations, but what harm did that cause anyone? I ask you, what harm? God only knows what you mean, sighed Yegor Semyonovich. It is stupid even to listen to you. Then you need not listen. The presence of others, especially of Yegor Semyonovich, now irritated Kovrin. He answered his father-in-law dryly, coldly, even rudely and could not look on him without contempt and hatred. And Yegor Semyonovich felt confused and coughed guiltily, although he could not see how he was in the wrong. 
unable to understand the cause of such a sudden reversal of their former hearty relations tanya leaned against her father and looked with alarm into his eyes it was becoming plain to her that their relations every day grew worse and worse that her father had aged greatly and that her husband had become irritable capricious excitable and uninteresting she no longer laughed and sang she ate nothing and whole nights never slept but lived under the weight of some impending terror torturing herself so much that she lay insensible from dinner-time till evening when the service was being held it had seemed to her that her father was crying and now as she sat on the terrace she made an effort not to think of it how happy were buddha and mohammed and shakespeare that their kind-hearted kinsmen and doctors did not cure them of ecstasy and inspiration said Coverin. if mohammed had taken potassium bromide for his nerves walked only two hours a day and drunk milk that astonishing man would have left as little behind him as his dog doctors and kind-hearted relatives only do their best to make humanity stupid and the time will come when mediocrity will be considered genius and humanity will perish if you only had some idea concluded Coverin peevishly if you only had some idea how grateful i am he felt strong irritation and to prevent himself saying too much rose and went into the house it was a windless night and into the window was borne the smell of tobacco plants and jalap through the windows of the great dark hall on the floor and on the piano fell the moon-rays Calvin recalled the raptures of the summer before when the air as now was full of the smell of jalap and the moon-rays poured through the window to awaken the mood of last year he went to his room lighted a strong cigar and ordered the servant to bring him wine but now the cigar was bitter and distasteful and the wine had lost its flavour of the year before how much it means to get out of practice from a single cigar and two sips of wine his head went round and he was obliged to take bromide of potassium before going to bed tanya said to him listen father worships you but you are annoyed with him about something and that is killing him look at his face he is growing old not by day but by hours i implore you androsha for the love of christ for the sake of your own dead father for the sake of my peace of mind be kind to him again i cannot and i do not want to but why tanya trembled all over explain to me why because i do not like him that is all answered Coverin carelessly shrugging his shoulders but better not talk of that he's your father i cannot cannot understand said tanya she pressed her hands to her forehead and fixed her eyes on one point something terrible something incomprehensible is going on in this house you andrusha have changed you are no longer yourself you a clever an exceptional man get irritated over trifles you are annoyed by such little things that at any other time you yourself would have refused to believe it now do not be angry do not be angry she continued kissing his hands and frightened by her own words you are clever good and noble you will be just a father he is so good he is not good but merely good-humoured these vaudeville uncles of your father's type with well-fed easy-going faces are characters in their way and once used to amuse me whether in novels in comedies or in life but they are now hateful to me they are egoists to the marrow of their bones 
most disgusting of all is their satiety, and this stomachic, purely bovine or swinish optimism. Tanya sat on the bed and laid her head on a pillow. This is torture, she said, and from her voice it was plain that she was utterly weary and found it hard to speak. Since last winter not a moment of rest. It is terrible, my God, I suffer. Yes, of course, I am Herod, and you and your papa, the massacred infants, of course. His face seemed to Tanya ugly and disagreeable. The expression of hatred and contempt did not suit it. She even observed that something was lacking in his face. Ever since his hair had been cut off, it seemed changed. She felt an almost irresistible desire to say something insulting, but restrained herself in time, and overcome with terror, went out of the bedroom. Chapter 9 Coverin received an independent chair. His inaugural address was fixed for the 2nd of December, and a notice to that effect was posted in the corridors of the university. But when the day came, a telegram was received by the university authorities that he could not fulfill the engagement owing to illness. Blood came from his throat. He spat it up, and twice in one month it flowed in streams. He felt terribly weak and fell into a somnolent condition. But this illness did not frighten him, for he knew that his dead mother had lived with the same complaint more than ten years. His doctors, too, declared that there was no danger, and advised him merely not to work, to lead a regular life, and to talk less. In January, the lecture was postponed for the same reason, and in February, it was too late to begin the course. It was postponed till the following year. He no longer lived with Tanya, but with another woman, older than himself, who looked after him as if he were a child. His temper was calm and obedient, he submitted willingly, and when Varvara Nikolaevna, that was her name, made arrangements for taking him to the Crimea, he consented to go, although he felt that from the change no good would come. They reached Sevastopol late one evening and stopped there to rest, intending to drive to Yalta on the following day. Both were tired by the journey. Varvara Nikolaevna drank tea and went to bed, but Kovrin remained up. An hour before leaving home for the railway station, he had received a letter from Tanya, which he had not read, and the thought of this letter caused him unpleasant agitation. In the depths of his heart he knew that his marriage with Tanya had been a mistake. He was glad that he was finally parted from her, but the remembrance of this woman, who towards the last had seemed to turn into a walking, living mummy, in which all had died except the great, clever eyes, awakened in him only pity and vexation against himself. The writing on the envelope reminded him that two years before he had been guilty of cruelty and injustice, and that he had avenged on people in no way guilty his spiritual vacuity, his solitude, his disenchantment with life. He remembered how he had once torn into fragments his dissertation and all the articles written by him since the time of his illness, and thrown them out of the window, how the fragments flew in the wind and rested on the trees and flowers. In every page he had seen strange and baseless pretensions, frivolous irritation, and a mania for greatness and all this had produced upon him an impression that he had written a description of his own faults. 
Yet when the last copy-book had been torn up and thrown out of the window, he felt bitterness and vexation, and went to his wife and spoke to her cruelly. Heavens, how he had ruined her life! He remembered how once, wishing to cause her pain, he had told her that her father had played in their romance an unusual role, and had even asked him to marry her, and Yegor Semyonovitch, happening to overhear him, had rushed into the room, so dumb with consternation that he could not utter a word, but only stamped his feet on one spot and bellowed strangely, as if his tongue had been cut out and Tanya, looking at her father, cried out in a heart-rending voice and fell insensible on the floor. It was hideous. The memory of all this returned to him at the sight of the well-known handwriting. He went out onto the balcony. It was warm and calm, and a salt smell came to him from the sea. The moonlight and the lights around were imaged on the surface of the wonderful bay, a surface of a hue impossible to name. It was a tender and soft combination of dark blue and green. In parts the water resembled copperas, and in parts, instead of water, liquid moonlight filled the bay, and all these combined in a harmony of hues which exhaled tranquillity and exultation. In the lower story of the inn, underneath the balcony, the windows were evidently open, for women's voices and laughter could plainly be heard. There must be an entertainment. Kovrin made an effort over himself, unsealed the letter, and returning to his room began to read. My father has just died. For this I am indebted to you, for it was you who killed him. Our garden is being ruined. It is managed by strangers. What my poor father so dreaded is taking place. For this also I am indebted to you. I hate you with all my soul and wish that you may perish soon. Oh, how I suffer! My heart burns with an intolerable pain. May you be accursed. I took you for an exceptional man, for a genius. I loved you, and you proved a madman. Calverin could read no more. He tore up the letter and threw the pieces away. He was overtaken by restlessness, almost by terror. On the other side of the screen slept Varvara Nikolaevna. He could hear her breathing. From the story beneath came the women's voices and laughter. But he felt that in the whole hotel there was not one living soul except himself. The fact that wretched, overwhelmed Tanya had cursed him in her letter and wished him ill caused him pain, and he looked fearfully at the door, as if fearing to see again that unknown power which in two years had brought about so much ruin in his own life and in the lives of all who were dearest to him. By experience he knew that when the nerves give way the best refuge lies in work, he used to sit at the table and concentrate his mind upon some definite thought. He took from his red portfolio a copy-book containing the conspect of a small work of compilation which he intended to carry out during his stay in the Crimea, if he became tired of inactivity. He sat at the table and worked on this conspect, and it seemed to him that he was regaining his former peaceful, resigned, impersonal mood. His conspect led him to speculation on the vanity of the world. He thought of the great price which life demands for the most trivial and ordinary benefits which it gives to men. 
to reach a chair of philosophy under forty years of age, to be an ordinary professor, to expound commonplace thoughts, and those thoughts the thoughts of others, in feeble, tiresome, heavy language, in one word, to attain the position of a learned mediocrity. He had studied fifteen years, worked day and night, passed through a severe psychical disease, survived an unsuccessful marriage, been guilty of many follies and injustices which it was torture to remember. Coverin now clearly realized that he was a mediocrity, and he was willingly reconciled to it, for he knew that every man must be satisfied with what he is. The conspect calmed him, but the torn letter lay upon the floor and hindered the concentration of his thoughts. He rose, picked up the fragments, and threw them out of the window. But a light wind blew from the sea, and the papers fluttered back on to the window sill. Again he was overtaken by restlessness akin to terror, and it seemed to him that in the whole hotel except himself there was not one living soul. He went to the balcony. The bay, as if alive, stared up at him from its multitude of light and dark blue eyes, its eyes of turquoise and fire, and beckoned him. It was warm and stifling. How delightful, he thought, to bathe. Suddenly beneath the balcony a violin was played, and two women's voices sang. All this was known to him. The song which they sang told of a young girl, diseased in imagination, who heard by night in a garden mysterious sounds and found in them a harmony and a holiness incomprehensible to us mortals. Coverin held his breath, his heart ceased to beat, and the magical ecstatic rapture which he had long forgotten trembled in his heart again. A high black pillar, like a cyclone or water-spout, appeared on the opposite coast. It swept with incredible swiftness across the bay towards the hotel. It became smaller and smaller, and Coverin stepped aside to make room for it. The monk, with uncovered grey head, with black eyebrows, barefooted, folding his arms upon his chest, swept past him and stopped in the middle of the room. Why did you not believe me? he asked, in a tone of reproach, looking carelessly at Coverin. If you had believed me when I said you were a genius, these last two years would not have been passed so sadly and so barrenly. Coverin again believed that he was the elected of God and a genius. He vividly remembered all his former conversation with the black monk and wished to reply but the blood flowed from his throat on to his chest, and he, not knowing what to do, moved his hands about his chest till his cuffs were red with the blood. He wished to call Varvara Nikolaevna, who slept behind the screen, and making an effort to do so, cried, Tanya! He fell on the floor, and raising his hands again, cried, Tanya! He cried to Tanya, cried to the great garden with the miraculous flowers, cried to the park, to the pines with their shaggy roots, to the rye field, cried to his marvelous science, to his youth, his daring, his joy, cried to the life which had been so beautiful. He saw on the floor before him a great pool of blood, and from weakness could not utter a single word but an inexpressible infinite joy filled his whole being. 
Beneath the balcony the serenade was being played, and the black monk whispered to him that he was a genius, and died only because his feeble, mortal body had lost its balance, and could no longer serve as the covering of genius. When Varvara Nikolaevna awoke, and came from behind her screen, Kovrin was dead, but on his face was frozen an immovable smile of happiness. End of the Black Monk by Anton Chekhov Translated by Robert Edward Crozier Long